All right, what's up, peeps? All right, uh, everything looks good. All right, so where are you guys from? I see uh, Justin. Hey, Jared, Jared, do me a favor. Uh, copy and paste that and resend that to all people. What's up, Leonard? New Mexico State Police, that's a, that's a great organization. Greg is from Tennessee. Greg is not talking too much today. What, what agency are you, are you from, Greg? <laughs> all right, so what's up, Ronald? Awesome. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate it. Is it uh, Journey, Old Dominion? Do me a favor, resend that to all attendees if you can. All right. This is awesome. Awesome. What's up, Randy? Randy, again, uh, change your settings. Let me show you what I mean. Change your chat settings to all attendees. What's up, Greg? Awesome. Marvin from New Jersey State Police. That's another uh, very... Uh, prestigious, really, uh, agency, and I'm glad you, that you're here. Uh, great uniform. I really should say it. it really comes down to the uniform, if you ask me, right? Mike Marvin, great uniforms at New Jersey State Police. <laughs> All right. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys. I uh, got a couple minutes here. Uh, change your chat settings to all attendees. Yep. I'm glad that you're back, my friend. I'm glad that you're back. Galaxy Note 9. <laughs> you got a weird name, but your uh, your parents really loved their Galaxy. <laughs> What's up, Dimitri? It's good to have you back too, buddy. All right. <clears throat> uh, let's see here. My friend Ronald is here. Let me see if I'm looking for somebody else too. Catherine, my friend Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Oh, you already went to the class. Um, I'm gonna be in Phoenix next week. Let's see who's where that class is at. I'll be in surprise. I'll be in surprise, but you already, yeah, surprise, yeah. Mm -hmm. What else we got going on? I'll be in Vegas the week after for anybody that's near Vegas. Uh, let's see who else we got here. Mark Baca, what's up, buddy? Did you send your shout out yet? There, oh, coincidence, wasn't it? I think you were typing it as I was saying hello. So there you go. Okay, so let's get started. I'm just looking for one more, one more person. What's up, Alberto? Uh, resend it out to all attendees, if you don't mind. It's good to have you here. Hold on one second. Thanks, Alberto. Yeah, where is Jody? Uh, Jody and Deborah are not here yet, but I expect them actually. Okay, guys, let's get started. What's up, Tim? Let's get started. So, welcome to Tim. There you go. <laughs> there you go, Tim. All right, buddy. So, uh, welcome to Search and Seizure Saturdays, where I answer your questions. So. What I'm going to do is I have two questions. Um, they're very good questions. I'm going to go and give you a, a solid answer as best as I can for each. But also at the end of this or even during, if you have another question, ask it. Now, we can do this one of two ways. We can, uh, we can ask questions in the chat 
or I can turn on your mic and you can ans uh, ask it like a, like a radio style. For those who are new, just so you know, I cannot see you and I cannot hear you right now, okay? So do not worry. I cannot see you and I cannot hear you. Now, I'm also recording this for YouTube, right? So um, if you wanna rewatch this or if there is, um, you know, something that you wanna, uh, you wanna share with your fellow coworkers and so forth, then this will be available on YouTube. All right. So a real quick introduction. My name is Anthony Bandiero. I am an attorney and senior legal instructor with Blue to Gold Law Enforcement Training. This is what I do for a living. I have the honor and the privilege to train law enforcement officers around the country and also um, attorneys as well. A lot of people like my training because it's not like your stereotypical boring legal training. You can always get, um, you can always take away something from any training, right? And so we, we have a positive attitude about training, but I have to admit that this stuff is actually interesting. You know, search and seizure is what you do for a living, right? It's a large part of the decisions and so forth and the activities that you're engaged in every single day of your career, right? So you have to know it. And it's not, it shouldn't be boring, it should be exciting. And I uh, personally think it's the most exciting, uh, I, I think it's the most exciting subject in law enforcement, but certainly, you know, I like the running and gunning stuff too, right? I always like shooting uh, the people's ammo for free. Don't get me wrong, but I like this more. Uh, at the end of the day, I enjoy this more. All right, for those who have just joined us, if you wouldn't mind sending your agency to all attendees, to all attendees. What's up, Alex? Okay. so. If you want to know more about my background, feel free to go to bluetogold.com. Let's continue. These three books, I just want to plug these three books. Um, they are, I think they move the ball forward. The Search and Seizure Survival Guide is the best search and seizure book for law enforcement. Um, it's been in production for years, and it's by far the best-selling search and seizure book in the United States. There is a New Jersey version, so I got... My, uh, my buddy from New Jersey State Police. There is a, um, a Texas version, and then of course the national version. Thanks, Catherine, I appreciate it. Maryland, uh, the, Maryland is actually a Fourth Amendment state. And I'm, what I mean by that is some states are more restrictive. New Jersey is a great example of that. Um, that's why they have their own version. Now, Texas has its own version because they do some things differently, but quite frankly, they're my biggest clients out there are Texas cops. And so I made their own version with some, some case law. But here's my point. If you get the, the regular version, which you see right here, it's gonna be 99% of what you do in Maryland. So it will help you for sure. All right, but I am gonna go through, just so you know, I'm, I'm gonna go through all, and I'm gonna try to make specific state versions, even for Maryland um, and so forth, even though the book, the concepts won't be different. It will just be the citations will be a lot different, right? So it helps to cite Maryland case law versus, um, you know, California or something like that. All right. So disclaimers, laws and agency SOPs may be more restrictive. Okay. Um, a good example of that is actually talking about differences. We also have a state uh, trooper from New Mexico. New Mexico is more difficult, right? What's up, Kirby? Do me a favor, guys. Send out your comments to all attendees, uh, Alex and Thomas and, and Kirby and, and so forth. Nobody can see it except me, just so you know. Your fellow officers on here, 
do not know where you're from. And I think it's great to have that camaraderie. That's, that's how uh, I like to do these webinars because I want to build camaraderie. I want people to just be like, we're in a webinar and you have people from both coasts, North Dakota, Texas, and I think it's just in, in, in all but in between. Cool. Thanks, Jason. Awesome. So New Mexico is a good example. New Mexico is more strict on their search and seizure issues than many other states. So don't forget that I am talking about national standards, right? Really like the Fourth Amendment. The good news is this will give you some, some guidance. This will give you something to think about. And also the rules are the same in the, in the majority of the states. If you have any doubts about the legality of your actions, push up the chain. And finally, this course is legal education, not legal advice. All right, let's continue. Your certificate, okay? This is a fill in the blank style certificate because of how many people take these webinars on a weekly basis. Um, if you take our, our paid training, of course, we'll give you a really nice, you know, nice, nicer certificate to be honest with you, but uh, that's just because we, we, we fill in your name and, and, and send it to your agency and so forth. But for these webinar certs, go to the website, bluetogold.com store. You'll see free certs and then pick your webinar and download it. All right. Yeah. Joseph says PA is also a challenge and that's true. PA um, uh, Pennsylvania is a little bit more strict, even though not even nearly as strict as New Mexico or Oregon. So, or New Jersey, New Jersey is way more strict as well. All right. Let's talk about your questions. Okay. So, the first question is, and I think this actually, the person who asked this is on the webinar today, but I usually don't use names and agencies just to, it, that's up to them if they wanna share, you know, who, but right, so here it is, okay? Rehab facilities have consent to enter and search rooms. That's very common. Can the police help with these searches? Instead of just giving you the quick answer, I wanna go through it step by step, and then we're gonna come to our decision. Let's start. So what's up? What's up, Randy? Have, nice to have you back. Okay. So this is an example of how the book can be used, right? Um, I talk about uh, consent to search by co-occupants. What we're going to be talking about here is what's called common authority. Um, I don't call it common authority because usually it has to do with co-occupants. That is the common authority to search uh, residences. But this is an example of that and, and, and so forth. So if you have the book, this is how it's used. All right, the first thing I wanna talk about is private searches, okay? What is the law, regard, uh, the, the search and seizure rules regarding private searches? It's gonna be pretty short and sweet, okay? So here's things that we're talking about, right? The mechanic is working on somebody's car and while they're underneath it, they find a hidden compartment, they discover drugs, they call police. Um, an IT department or uh, the geek squad at Best Buy discovers child porn on somebody's computer. Airline searches a bag because it's unclaimed and they open it up and what do they find in there? Narcotics, right? A valet parker searches under the seat and finds a gun. At the end of the day, we don't care why they did it. We don't care if it, if it, if it was violating their policy. We don't care that the valet parker shouldn't have been under the seat he should have been driving the car and so forth. We don't care. It's not our problem, okay? It's not our problem. 
it's if the if the private person doesn't like what the mechanic did they can sue the mechanic in a tort claim so for some kind of trespass you know good luck with that but that's their remedy as a as far as you taking the evidence you are good to go all right here's a case out of actually out of new jersey atlantic city Casino personnel, okay, casino security is are going to are going to trespass this guy from the casino. The reason is is he's counting cards. Now, counting cards is not illegal, but it gives the patron an advantage. And last time I checked, casinos are built on losers, not winners. So they want him gone. So they bring him back to security office. And they're writing him a trespass order. At this point, police are not involved. They don't need to be involved. They're just going to trespass this guy. Well, a security guard goes through the, the, the patron's um, backpack. Why did they go through it? I don't know, right? You're not going to find any evidence of counting cards in the backpack. It's, it was mentally counting cards. There was no devices or anything. So why they went there went through it, I don't know. They found narcotics. The police showed up, the, uh, he was arrested, and the police seized the cocaine. He goes to court, and he argues, hey, first of all, they shouldn't have been in my backpack. And second of all, these security guards are licensed by the state of New Jersey. Therefore, they are government actors, right? They're almost the same thing as a police officer, legally, under the Fourth Amendment. Is that true? Yes or no? Is that, is that suspect correct? Yes or no? Catherine's fresh out the gate. She says no. Uh, uh, Jamie, reset your settings to all attendees. Thomas, to all attendees, because nobody can read your answer except me. Okay, that is correct, right? The, the, the argument that because he has a license, right? Joseph, all attendees. Be, just because he has, has a license to be a security guard in the state of New Jersey is irrelevant, okay? That's like saying the mechanic has a license to be an auto mechanic and therefore his search is under the state. No. So we do, remember this, we do not care as far as cops are concerned, as far as the Constitution is concerned. The, the Fourth Amendment and your state equivalent is about restricting who? police and other various actors, right? Like code enforcement and so forth. But as far as what we're talking about today, it's you. That evidence is coming, coming in. So the first takeaway is that if a private search reveals evidence, pol police may use that information in a search warrant. So when we're talking about these rehab centers, if the rehab center finds narcotics in somebody's room, it's coming in, okay? It's, it's coming in. And you, you can ask about whether or not they did it under their contract and whether they had consent and so forth. But at the end of the day, that's not our problem, unless the rehab center is a government actor. But in this case, this is a private facility, right? It's a company that owns it. Second, so that's our first rule. Our second rule is repeating private searches, okay? What happens when police show up and they want to conduct the same exact search that the private person did. Well, okay, so we got a question. I'm gonna repeat it for my YouTube audience. 
What about a cop working off duty as a security guard or security, not security guard, but as security, right? And he does the same thing. Then it is a government search. It's an excellent question, but even if you're off duty or you're being paid by a private person, you are clothed, right? With the, the a color of authority, right? You are working as a government official, no matter where you get your paycheck. So look at Catherine showing off the knowledge. Catherine is showing off and I love it. Okay, I love it. So one, hopefully answers your question. Okay, so when does this private search become a government search? Well, did police direct the person to do it? Did they say to the rehab per, you know, to the to the um, the, the the agent or the uh, whatever you want to call the, the 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 resident supervisor, whatever, right? The employee. Hey, why don't you go in that room and search around? Did they participate in it, right? Or did they encourage it, right? Well, that's the first analysis. But certainly, if you direct the person to do it and you participate, those are pretty easy. But the encouraging can get some interesting cases because the other thing that the courts would like to see is why was the person doing it? Was their, their motive to help themselves for their own interests or were they trying to help police? You know, so for example, you could have a case that comes out like this. You have a, a cop who arrives at the, at the rehab place and he says, hey, you know what? I can't go into that room. But I sure would like you to, you know, why don't you go in that room and go recover the evidence? Well, then the question is, is that looks like a government search. It looks like you're changing that person into your agent. But if the employee got on the stand and testified that he was going to go into that room anyway, and, you know, they have a zero drug policy, of course, at a rehab center, I would think they would have a zero drug policy. And I wasn't going to room anyway. And look, he's violating our rules and we're going to search that room you could have an outcome where it's not a government search. But in my experience, courts are going to lean more on what you did, right? And less on their mindset. So um, close calls, especially, they're gonna be like, okay, it's probably a government search. And then we go from there. Jared says, private security is not part of the executive branch unless acting on behalf of the agency or under their guidance. That's correct, right? They're not agents of the government. Okay, so let's look at this case. A very important case from the US Supreme Court. It's US versus Jacobson. So a guy named Jacobson is set to receive a FedEx package. This is a case from 1984. Well, it was, deci well, it was decided in 1984, but it ha happened a little, or obviously a little earlier than that. It went to the Supreme Court in 1984. So, the package is damaged. FedEx opens the package to determine if there's any damage and they're going to have to pay for anything because they caused the damage, right? So they're responsible. Now, when they open the package, they find a tube with plastic ends, like a cardboard tube, right? They, un they take off the end, they empty out its contents, and four bags of white powdery substance drops on the table. Thinking that it's narcotics, they put the package back together, they put the, the, the bags back into the tube, back into the package, and they put it to the side, they call the DEA. 
The DEA arrives, and what do you think that they did? They opened the package, right, without a warrant. And the, uh, the four bags of white powdery substance comes out. It looks like it's packaged in a manner consistent with contraband. It looks like contraband. They then do a NIC test. I make a little joke here because it's early 80s police work. I don't, and I make a joke about how if you've ever seen those early 80s field test kits for narcotics. Oh, that's some good stuff right there, my man. That is some good stuff. All right. Well, according to Hollywood, that's how they did it, right? So, <laughs> so they nick test it. It's confirmed, you know, it's presumptive for narcotics, and they do a controlled delivery. Jacobson gets arrested. He's for trafficking. His argument is this. He says, look, he says, all right, I'll 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 give you the fact that I can't complain about FedEx. Okay. Uh, that has been the rule since the 1920s. Okay, uh, fine. But when FedEx put the package back together, I got my privacy back, right? And so therefore, DEA invaded my privacy, and the U.S. Supreme Court said no. They said no because, as Catherine reminded us, the cat was out of the bag, right? The cat was out of the bag. There is no additional privacy interests at stake here. The police, the DEA knows what's in it. They know it's these five, these four bags of white powdery substance packaged consistent with narcotics. It's most likely narcotics. In other, in other words, they have probable cause. It's not going to be flour or sugar. It's going to be narcotics, right? Nobody's sending four little bags of, of flour through FedEx and paying those kind of prices, right? So, there is, there was no privacy interest. Therefore, there was no search. There was no search under this case. Look at Ronald. Ronald says, the DA was repeating the private search unless they searched more than the original private search without a warrant or what's called CREW. CREW, crew is an acronym that I came up with to remind cops that every single time you conduct a search or seizure under the Fourth Amendment, you need one of three things. Do you have consent from somebody who could give it? That's actually, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that. Do you have a recognized exception or which means do you have a court case that tells you that you can do what you, what you did, right? Like searching a car without a warrant. That's the motor vehicle exception. The court will tell you you can do that. You don't need a warrant. And then finally, do you have a warrant? You need one of those. So this was actually not a search, but it was a seizure because the government did seize his package, but it was lawful because they had probable cause. There you go. Okay. Ronald brings up one of the points, but there's actually another point I want to bring up. So the first point is under this cat out of the back search, you cannot, you cannot exceed the original scope of the private search. If a person searches a backpack and finds a kilo of cocaine in the main compartment and they bring it to you and you happen to, I would like you to go get a warrant, but if you happen to open up the main compartment and look at that kilo of cocaine, okay, so far, cat out of the back search, so far so good under this rule. But if you looked into the front pocket and found other, a, a gun or, unless you knew it was a gun, probably for safety reasons, or some other evidence like credit card fraud, 
that evidence is most likely going to be suppressed because you're, you're expanding the search beyond what the private person did. The second rule I want you to know is this. The private search under Jacobson, you have to have lawful access. Usually because the people bring you the container and you search it just like they did. Takeaway, okay? If police have lawful access to the container, like they did in Jacobson, they can repeat the same search the private person conducted. So step one, private searches are not constitutional issues. Second, police can do the exact same thing the private person did if they have lawful access. Let's continue, okay? Third, searches under contract, right? Examples, university residential assistance, the RAs, landlord inspections, hotel inspections, rehab centers, right? These searches are controlled by contract. The person has agreed to certain searches by their landlord. Rehab centers, I'm sure, most of them have a clause there that says that they can search at any time for any reason to confirm that there's no contraband on premises, right? That's on their contract, so they have agreed to that. Now, here's the takeaway though, okay? People can contract away certain privacy rights, absolutely. But whether cops can search depends on whether there was common authority by whom? by the person who is searching, by the landlord, by the RA, by the rehab employee. So the fact that the rehab employee can go into the room is based on the contract. That's a private search, okay? We have nothing to do with that. But whether or not you can also tag along depends on whether the, 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 the rehab employee had common authority over the room. That's what we'll turn to next. Okay, common authority. Now, a person with common authority over an area or an item, right? Like a house or a car, backpack, purse. If they do have common authority, you can perform the same search that they could, okay? In other words, they can make you their agent. They can pass the buck down to you. If they can do it, and they had common authority, you can do it. All right, so common authority generally means that everybody that has a privacy interest in the place, remember, common authority issues usually go like this. I allow you to search the apartment, okay? And I have a roommate. And you find narcotics that implicate my roommate. And you arrest him, right? Now, I'm the third party. I'm the one with the, the questions. Do I have common authority? Well, I certainly have common authority over common areas, right? That's kind of where it kind of comes from, right? The, the shared bathroom, the shared living room, the kitchen. But if I told you to go into his bedroom and to search around and I don't really have access to his bedroom, I don't go in there and, and so forth, then I can't let you in there. So that evidence would be suppressed. But if you found evidence in, let's say, a shared closet or something, that would be coming in. All right. 
So common authority is, do you reasonably believe that the person giving you consent has joint ownership of the item or place, joint access or control? Now, joint ownership, do not read that too far. A, if you own a house and you rent it out, you own it. But if you rent it out, you don't have the ownership we're talking about here. We're talking about things that are just common, commonly owned by among people, and they know that other people use them. But the, the, the landlord may own the house, but he does not have common authority over the house as when it's lawfully rented. Joint access. If I have a roommate and we share a car, we both have keys to it, that's common authority. Even though, let's say, the car is in his name, but I drive it frequently. I have a key. He knows that I can take it anytime I want. I would have common authority of that car. Therefore, if police showed up one day, said, hey, can we, can we search your roommate's car? I could most likely say, yes, go for it, because I have joint access, unfettered access, right? Unfettered access, not just on a request basis. And finally, control. This is why you get to pull people over that are driving somebody else's car and they tell you, you ask for consent to search, and they say, look, I can't tell you, I can't give you consent to search. It's not my car. I don't own it. And what do cops say? Well, the cops will say, well, hey, Anthony, uh, you're driving it. You're, you're in control of it. The law says you can give consent. So what do you say? Can I search it? And you are correct, right? Legally, you are correct. Okay. So... Juan asks a question, and I normally, I normally actually address this question in my full day class, but I'll address it now because it's a good question. What about the, the parents, right? Can they, do they have common authority over the minor's room? The general answer is yes, right? The vast majority of cases are going to be yes for various reasons. The parent-child relationship, the head of the household relationship, and the fact that at the end of the day, the child is not living in the room with the mindset of a tenant. The child is living in the room or the house, right, in the room with the mindset of a child, even though they may be 17 years old, that they know that push comes to shove, the parents have access to the room. So if you have a situation where the parents are saying, yes, you can search the room, and the child is saying, no, you cannot search my room, the vast majority of cases, the parents are going to win that, that argument hands down. The only thing I want you to be concerned about, Juan, though, is this. Courts do not necessarily say that, that the parents have access, common authority, over everything brought into the room from the outside. Therefore, if the, if the, uh, the kid, let's say 17-year-old Johnny, brings in a backpack from the outside, right? It, the parents didn't buy it uh, and so forth. They don't even know about it. It's kind of hidden there. And the, and the cops want to search that backpack. The general answer is no. The parents cannot give the cops consent to search that backpack because the, the parents have no joint ownership, no open access. It's not agreed upon by the kid and the parents at this time that they can, they can you know, if, especially if Johnny's saying, no, you cannot search that backpack and the parents do not have the control, right? Now, a lot of, a lot of cops out there, when I say this, they're like, are you crazy? Because I don't know about you, Anthony, but if, a, if my kid brought in something from the outside, I sure in hell am searching it. 
and I say to you, you be you, because it, I, I'm not I'm not going to control that, right? The the Fourth Amendment doesn't care about what parents do in their house with their kids, so that is irrelevant. You, be you, do what you're going to do as a parent, whether or not you are trespassing on the kids' rights. Good luck, Johnny, trying to sue his parents over trespass. But at the end of the day, the cops do not have common authority. I'm sorry, the parents do have what's called common authority over the backpack. Therefore, they couldn't search it. I hope that helps. Juan, I hope that helps. Um, let me see some other follow-up questions. What if the child is no longer a minor but still living at home? Does the child have a right to privacy? Well, remember, to answer the question, you're welcome. To answer the question legally, all children have a right to privacy to their things. I mean, it's not as if the child, 17, 16, 14, I mean, sure, you can get obviously pretty extreme like a five-year-old, right? But as children have some level of independence and they live in their rooms and so forth, they certainly have some level of privacy, right? Um, but what it is, it's actually what's called greater authority. The, the, the child's privacy interest is going to be, is, is less than the parents. The parents have a higher level of authority over the room. Now, as far as the question of when the clock ticks midnight and the child turns 18, does that automatically mean that he, can, he or she can kick out the parents? The answer is not necessarily, not necessarily. The fact that the, that the child is an adult is surely an, an important factor. A more important factor is this. What does the relationship look like, right? When the, when the child becomes 18 at the stroke of midnight, for most kids that are living at home, nothing has changed except their date of birth or their age, right? In other words, mom and dad are still taking care of him. He's not paying rent. The, um, the room is not locked out to the parents. Um, they're still raising him and giving him moral guidance, I hope. So um, that is in the, uh, this idea, by the way, of child, you know, the child turns an adult is actually covered in this book. That's why a lot of cops like it. So I do talk about it, but age is one factor, but a better factor is look at the whole situation, ask yourself, does this look like a parent-child relationship or does this look like a landlord-tenant relationship? And depending on what you think is, is gonna be the answer. Does that help? Okay, good. Uh, okay, does that go for an adult living at their parents' house, paying rent, but their door has no lock? Look, if the parent, I'm sorry, if the child pays rent and it's not one of these, you know, there's two types of paying rent out there. The first type of rent is I'm going to teach you responsibility. So give me 50 bucks a week type rent you know, that's probably more like a chore, right? That's more like a chore. But if the child is paying rent and it, and they had kind of agree that this rent is because of, you know, treating him like an adult and giving him his space, get a warrant, get a warrant. So, right, get a warrant. In California, we are told in those scenarios to just get a warrant. Certainly, um, you know, California in any state is going to um, is going to encourage you to get a warrant. But even in California, push comes a shove. I have plenty of California cases that uphold what I'm talking about. Uh, but 
of, of course, why wouldn't your DA just say, please do me a favor, save me a heartache, a little work, just go get that warrant so we don't have to fight this in court. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Okay, so this common authority, I like to call it the piggyback rule, right? Basically, if the third party can do it, right? And, 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 and then you can do it, but there's a limitation here with these contract searches. Let me give you an example of just kind of this common authority, right? It, this has to do with a case where the, uh, the target of an investigation was living in a long-term stay. He leaves the long-term stay, gets in his car, commits a traffic violation. They go up to the car, they smell weed. It's illegal where they're at, right? Like in California and in Colorado, if you get pulled over with weed, they ask you, why don't you have a, a minimum amount of weed, right? In California, I think you can't even drive around without at least a pound on your person. <laughs> so here, they search the car, they find more narcotics, he goes to jail. They go back to the room. Why? Is because the surveillance team, before they stopped him, they knew that the guy let in two of his friends into the, into the room, and those two friends were still there as this guy was driving around, probably to go, you know, bring back some more drugs or something. Um, they asked, they knock on the door, they asked the friends to enter the room to talk. The friends oblige, so far so good, right? So far so good. They then asked the friends to, for permission to search a chest that has, has a Wi-Fi camera pointed towards the opening, right? Towards the front, it's closed, but we know what's going on now, right? The cops know that that chest contains contraband Otherwise, why would you have this Wi-Fi camera pointed towards it? So they search it, they find drugs, and the, and the cops say, look, the friends gave us consent. Are we good under common authority, yes or no? Right, Jason says no. Mark says no, no, because they are trespassing essentially, right? There's no reason to believe that just because they're in the house, you know, in the room, that they can let the cops search around. They shouldn't be doing it either, by the way. That's why the piggyback rule helps here. Ask yourself, just because they're hanging out the house waiting for the guy to come back, does that mean they can just snoop around this guy's uh, apartment and open his drawers? They could. Uh, I mean, th if they did, it wouldn't be a, a Fourth Amendment issue. That'd be a private search, even though they're not supposed to do it. But here the cops were participating illegal search. That's right. That's right, Ronald. And I like what Jared said too. Look at it as a trespass. Now let's look at this case. Okay. The cops are targeting the husband. They think that he has narcotics. He's not home. They talk to the wife. The, uh, the conversation, you know, well, they ask for consent to search for narcotics and the wife consents, right? Like all good wives do, right? Sure. You can get my husband in trouble, right? So, um, they come in and they're talking about this, this dresser, right? But basically the conversation goes like this. It's half mine and half his. I use the top drawers, the top two drawers. He uses the bottom two drawers. I don't really access his stuff normally, right? But you can, you can open them up, right? You can, you can look in there. They find drugs in his dresser drawer. And the question is, is under most scenarios, right? Under most marriages, that you, you know, a, a typical marriage. Do you think that she had 
common authority over those two dresser drawers where they found the drugs, yes or no? Under most typical marriage situations. Okay. Right. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. In other words, ask yourself this, right? Ask yourself this. Do you think the husband, right? Do you think the husband would be shocked to come home one day and find his wife putting clothes away, checking to see if he needs socks or underwear for his birthday? Do you think he'd be like, what the hell? Are you? Is there any evidence? Did I give you any evidence that they had an agreement that she would not go into the dresser drawers? No. But by the way, so Tim and, and uh, Ronald bring up some good points. Even if she, and actually she did testify, by the way, to this, just to let you know. Even if she testifies later that she never accesses the dresser drawers, she doesn't, she doesn't put her, his clothes away. Even if the result will likely be the same. Because it's still not unreasonable to believe that a, a, a typical marriage that she cannot just open the drawers and look around, that he would be shocked at that, that that would violate his privacy interest. Do you see where I'm going with that? Okay. Now, <laughs> with a lock on it, right, Jacob? Jacob says he should hide his stuff in a toolbox, put a lock on it. Now, another question, another Jason asks, how about a computer that he only has access to? Well, the question is, right, I like that, AJ. Hey, AJ, what's up, man? <laughs> I don't know if I saw you say an intro, but I, I see you here now, which is great. My buddy, AJ. All right. So the question is, do you think the husband would believe that the wife would could access his computer and, and you know, that she could access if she wanted to, right? And then he, he wouldn't be upset about it. Look at it from that point of view, right? The vast majority of cases out there are probably something like this. Like, take my house. I have my own laptop. My wife has her own laptop. But I certainly have gone on her laptop before or whatever. I may need to use it for something. She wouldn't be shocked that I'm on her laptop. And if that's the case, then I can give consent to the police to search it. Now, if we have some agreement or if she put a password on her laptop that I, I would have to guess to find out what it is, then the answer is probably no. I would be careful with that one. But look through it from the eyes of him, right? Look through it the eyes of him. It would Does he think his wife would probably go on his computer and so forth? And he, right? Okay. So Nate asks a follow-up question. It falls under the definition of a community property. No. No, that's not quite how I, uh, that maybe helps, but it doesn't push the ball forward because the idea of community property is really who will get the stuff in divorce, right? Or who has a, who has a property interest in, the, in the, the item and so forth. But I don't want you to focus on legal title or, hey, if we get divorced, we're going to split all this stuff up and I get half of that dresser, we're going to saw it in half right? You get the bottom, I get the top. That's not going to move the ball forward constitutionally. The better question to ask is this. Do each person, th does the person 
that you're asking for consent? Do they have a privacy interest in the place searched, right? Do they have a privacy interest? Are they, is this something that they could access if they wanted to? Is this something that they could put stuff into? If the answer is yes, I think you're going to win. But if the answer is like, I don't think that that person should be messing with that stuff, they probably, I don't think the other person would expect his or her spouse to mess with it, then the answer may be no. Yeah. You're welcome. And it's still kind of a little confusing, but um, Ronald's saying, I'm guessing he didn't make any effort to keep private from her. That would have been at been a factor. There, there we go. And I think it's more than a factor. What do you think is going on here? Right. All right. So here's our kind of rule here. Most courts do not allow cops to piggyback off of these limited home intrusions because the homeowner is consenting to a limited entry for a specific purpose, right? The, this purpose doesn't include police involvement, so it's, it's a restricted consent. If I, said to, if I said to my wife, hey, you can drive my car, okay? But if you get pulled over, I do not want you to consent to search my car. And my wife, you know, she agreed to that. She says, okay, I get that, right? And the police knew that. They pull over my wife in my car. She says, hey, can we search your husband's car? She says, well, look, I don't think I can because I promised my husband that I wouldn't let anybody search it if I really did have this weird conversation like that. Then actually police should not push the issue. You're going to need probable cause to get into that car because you know that we have agreed that she doesn't have that common authority to give it to somebody else. Kind of weird. That's what's going on here. So, but the other thing, which is also a point is that we are talking about the home. The home is always more protected. I mean, these are, these are quasi homes, they're residential hotels, um, university dorms, but they certainly are homes in a fourth amendment sense. So you're also going to have courts being very strict about police entering them. Here's an example. Okay. We recognize that residents have a reduced expectation of privacy in their home whenever a landlord or guest enters the premises. But residents do not thereby forfeit an expectation of privacy as to the police. In other words, an invitation to a plumber, a dinner guest, or a landlord, or, you know, or a, a resident agent at a rehab, does not open the door to one's home to a warrantless search by a police officer. So just because I consent to have the landlord enter my property to check for leaks, damage, you know, that type of stuff, doesn't mean that I've also consented for him or her to bring in the local police department. That would be exceeding. He doesn't have that common authority, right? For the purposes, oh, this is, sorry. Okay, this is an example of this case, okay, of this principle. A motel called the police because she found drugs under the mattress. Now, the way that the motel manager got into the, to the hotel was the occupants complained about bed bugs. That served them right to, to complain about this, right? So the occupant is not there they're running around town somewhere but it's still a legally rented room the manager goes in there searches around op lifts up the 
mattress and what did this person forget to bring with them? Their gun and drugs, right? They leave it there. They leave the room. They call the police. The police arrive. The manager says, hey, I'll show you the drugs in the room, which the police do take the manager up on this. And they see under the mattress and they see the, the gun and drugs. Are we good? Yes or no? How I see mostly yeses. How how did we just miss? How do we just miss this? How how do we how do we miss this one? Look, let's repeat it. Let's repeat it. We recognize that residents have a reduced expectation of privacy in their home or hotel room whenever a landlord or guest enters the premises, but residents do not thereby forfeit an expectation of privacy as to the police. In other words, an invitation to the plumber, a dinner guest, a hotel manager, does not open the door to one's home to a warrantless search by a police officer. You're not, you're not gonna be able to get into that room. The manager does not have common authority right. The manager does not have common authority. The fact that the manager went in there and did whatever they did is irrelevant. Right, exactly, right? The manager has limited, limited consent to enter the room for a specific purpose, right? Okay, look, I, I just got back from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was a great time and I had my hotel. Imagine, I, you know, they came in and, and cleaned the room, which was actually amazing. I've I haven't had the room clean during my stay since COVID. It just looks like a, a bachelor pad in there. The, the, uh, the bed is never made. In fact, I get two queens so I can sleep in one bed for a couple nights and I switch to the other one that has, hasn't been unmade yet, right? But just because I know and just because I expect that the, you know, during normal pro, you know, pre-COVID, right? That the cleaning people will be in my room that's fine. I've given my consent for that, my implied or expressed consent. But if the cleaning person found evidence in my room, they cannot grab the police to come into my room and start looking around my room and see the same thing. Now, if somebody says cat out of the bag, the problem is, okay, what's the problem? You tell me, okay? What's the problem with the cat out of the bag search when it comes to hotel rooms and seeing the same thing inside the room? There's one principle that does that makes the cat of the bag search inapplicable. It's it, well, it's this idea, it's expectation of privacy, certainly. The idea is there it is. I think Ron. Okay, the idea is the lawful access, right? That's what Ronald's saying. It's right, it's the re-entry. It's one thing for the manager to find narcotics in a backpack and bring that out to the cop, and then the cop does the same search, opens the backpack and sees narcotics. That's called lawful access. But here, the police have to do another re-entry into the room, okay? Now, I think we're going to be going over a little bit. And usually these are an hour, but
but we may be going to the full hour and a half just so you know because i got one more question i'm going to answer for you guys and if you can't stick around i understand that but i'm going to stick around and, and uh do what i promised which was answer this other question for this other officer okay um look okay okay but somebody says if what if the employee stayed into the stayed in the room irrelevant it's it's the the that works if you're a cop and you're lawfully in the room if you're a cop and you're lawfully in the room investigating something and you stay in the room and another cop comes in that's not a problem but again the manager cannot allow police into the room for the purpose of searching around now if there's an officer safety issue dude you got to do but this ain't officer safety this is uh searching the room now if the guest checked out okay i think it's tim right you said tim now, if the, if the guest checked out and left the gun and drugs under the mattress, it's a different situation, 100%. Now we have what's called abandonment. There is no expectation of privacy of the stuff that people left in the room when they have, uh, have left, unless, unless it would seem reasonable that they would, they're coming back for it. They're coming back for it. Now, Let's, uh, Dimitri asked a question and we'll do this last question. I'm gonna move on to the next general question and we'll, we'll end off and we'll answer any follow-up questions. What if the boyfriend, for whatever reason, decided to hold on to his girlfriend's purse in a public place while she stepped away? Dimitri, for whatever reason, that's called, she's trying on some clothes and I've been there a thousand times, okay? Can he give consent to search the purse while the girlfriend's away since it's in his possession at the time? Generally speaking, the answer is yes, because he does have that form of control. Um, you know, would she be shocked if he was going through the purse looking for something? Probably not. I mean, she's taking a risk. She's taking a risk that he will that he would look through the purse. Therefore, there is some common authority there and probably going to win. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. Okay. The takeaway is this. The rehab center likely does not have common authority to let the police also search the room, even though they can do it. Therefore, either seek consent from the occupant or get a search warrant. Does that help for the person who asked that question? Now, let me see if my person is here. Hold on one second. Good, you're welcome. Okay. So here is my second question and we're gonna end off, but this one is again, a little long, but not as long as the last one. Can you tell me what you believe the safe zone percentages are for RS and PC are for search and seizure? I mean, a little bit, uh, those sentences are not correctly worded, but so what is the, what we call this is the burden of proof, right? And I do have some guidance here, even though there's not some hard set rules, except for, for one of them, okay? All right. Here we go. So first of all, we have, you know, we want to put on a, on a scale from zero to 100, zero being no confidence that anybody has committed a crime and 100 being certain that somebody committed a crime because you saw it with your own eyes. Hunches, hunches are probably around, you know, a few, something above zero, right? Not at zero, but something above zero to like 20% confidence, right? Um, there is a journal article on this. It's called uh, The Odds of Probable Cause by the Mississippi Law Journal. So this is also consistent with what I've seen in case law. Now, we know that hunches 
indicate a slight possibility of criminal activity, but cannot be used for anything to either accept to point you in the right direction that you may think that this guy is your suspect, so that, that targets your investigation, or for a consensual encounter, right? But hunches are great. You need hunches, but they don't allow you to search or seize. seize. Reasonable suspicion, okay? Reasonable suspicion is also a relatively low standard. You know, it's, if it's, a, it's hunches end off around 20%. Again, please do not ever <laughs> go to your DA and say, hey, I had 35% certainty right here, so, so I had reasonable suspicion. He or she is going to look at you and say, 35%, huh? Where'd you get that from? Oh, I got it from, I got it from Anthony's webinar class. We are having an academic discussion here, right? Just to give you some, an idea about where these levels of confidence are around on a scale. Okay. <laughs> so, and Jared, the answer is yes. I'm, I'm actually getting to that case too. So reasonable suspicion is, you know, relatively low. It's certainly, certainly less by a, by a, by a, by a lot than, than beyond, uh, preponderance of the evidence, right? More certain than not. And of course, it comes from John Terry versus Ohio, right? So this is Terry, Katz, and Chilton, okay? And those are the two guns that were found. Terry, Katz, and Chilton. Here's what they're doing, okay? And this is the, that's the picture of that building today, okay? <laughs> so, Terry, Katz, and Chilton are hanging out on the on this on the corner of Euclid and Heron in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, nineteen this is nineteen sixties case, right? So, what officer or I should say detective Martin McFadden saw was they're going back and forth and they're looking inside the Zucker's department store. Frequently. In fact, he counted about 12 times that they do this. Now, the first question I have for you is, is that illegal? And the answer is, of course not, right? You've got to remember that reasonable suspicion is by definition conduct that is not per se illegal, right? And just remember that. That's what these are all about. If it was illegal conduct, you would not call that reasonable suspicion. You would call that probable cause. So reasonable suspicion is always about conduct that has either an innocent explanation or a non-legal explanation. In other words, it's criminal conduct, right? Going in front and looking in the, uh, the window of Zucker's department store could either be A, he's waiting for his girlfriend to get off work so they all can go to the movies, or B, they're casing the joint. You know what I'm saying? It could have an instant explanation. So just remember that as we go through this analysis. Now, after seeing this, and Martin McFadden is one of the most renowned law enforcement officers in history. He's up there with Robert Peel in my book, right? Sir Robert Peel. So 38 years on the job, Cleveland, he's seen a thing or two. He goes up to Terry and his friends. He says, hey, what are you guys doing, right? 
Terry mumbles something, so he get, you know he's caught off guard by the cop. Then um, McFadden turns them all around, pats him down, pats him down, finds those those two weapons. Now, what I want you to to remember, okay, is that Terry did not get convicted of attempted armed robbery. That's what he was going to do. He got convicted of unlawful concealed carry. But do you think the public is mad at McFadden? Do you think that the, the manager of the department's Zucker store, right, would, if he knew that McFadden stopped him from going in there and doing that armed robbery, do you think the manager would be like, hey, next time let him do it so you get the more serious charges, right? Because the guy only served two years versus maybe 10 years. No. So remember that reasonable suspicion is to prevent crimes. And I'll talk about that in a second. But this is a historical marker in downtown, downtown Cleveland with Mark McFadden. They'll never forget that name. Mark McFadden is a god in the world of search and seizure. So the Supreme Court says that reasonable suspicion requires, quote, a moderate chance of illegal activity. You're welcome. There you go. He's got a little background about, about Terry versus Ohio, a little bit more than probably the Academy gave you. So moderate chance, not much, just moderate chance. You're rolling the dice a little bit that these guys could have an innocent explanation for what they're doing. Okay, probable cause. Now, we are going to dive a little deeper into probable cause than maybe you ever have before. It's not going to take long, but I do, I'm going to divide up probable cause into three categories. Okay? And it's important that we do this. All right. Anthony, what is the level of certainty that you think you need that a crime has been committed? So we have two analysis. We have, hey, how much evidence do we have that even a crime has been committed? And then the other thing is, how much certainty do we need, do we need that the person that I want to arrest did it? It's actually a little different for each. Let's go through it. Probable cause that a crime has occurred. We want over 50%. We want over 50% that a crime has occurred. The, the last thing that you want is to arrest somebody and you're not even really sure that a crime has even occurred, right? So when it comes to that analysis, that's what we want to see. Now, evidence that a crime has been committed should be more likely than not, right? Over that 50%, just more, more likely than not. So that's pretty easy. Okay, let's continue. Probable cause for the arrest of a non-serious crime. Speeding, you know, uh, reckless, um, you know, uh, other various non-serious crimes, right? All your misdemeanors and your, your low-level crimes, right? We, again, we want more likely than not. More likely than not. That's, you know, we don't want to be making bare minimum probable cause arrests for somebody jaywalking or littering, and you're not positive, you know, you see a cigarette being flung out the window, you pull the car over, there's four occupants, and it could have been, you know, it could have been either the front passenger or the rear passenger, nobody's admitting to smoking, there's no other evidence. 
it's a minor crime. Be, you know, be careful about siding or arresting for that, right? Um, you want more likely than not, you want to be able to put your finger on one particular person. So here's an example. A restaurant reports that one of two customers illegally smoked in the bathroom. Now you arrive and you know that one of them smoked, but you also know that one of them didn't. It's just one was just hanging out with the other person while they're smoking in the bathroom. Should you cite both customers for smoking, yes or no? Right, right. You just don't know who did it, right? Good. Now, probable cause for a serious crime. You ready for it? Are you sitting down? In the vast majority of states, except Oregon, that off the top of my head, in the vast majority of states, whether or not you need more likely than not for a serious crime, you need less. If I ask you, if I would have asked you, do you need more likely than not for, you know, for just in probable cause, you would have said, yes, you do. But push comes to shove under the Fourth Amendment. It's most certainly under 50%. We don't have a number. Do not think you're going to go find a case out there that says it's 45%, it's 40%. No. All you're going to do is find cases that simply say it is less than 50%. But we are talking serious crimes. We're not talking about big, you know, these, these minor crimes. We don't want to put our name in, 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 um, you know, on a case that is really not worth making bare minimum arrests. So let me give you an example, okay? An officer is standing in front of an apartment complex at, late at night, just minding his own business, you know, watching the beat. One shot rings out from the apartment behind him. He goes there, he busts down the door, he walks, you know, he runs into the apartment, he sees two guys standing over a dead body. There's a gun on the ground, the gun is exactly between both suspects. Now, the cop looks over at the dead body, one shot to the head. Both suspects are not, you know, we're, make, we're being academic here, there's no other evidence. The cop does not know who shot the person. There's no, they're not talking. There's no, we're not doing GSR, gunshot residue, right, on scene here. We are just wondering, at, at, he has no other evidence. And my question for you, who could he arrest that night for murder? Justin says both. Well, they're definitely, they're, they're definitely, I'm just, but I'm not talking about the, I'm not talking about best practices, right? Legally, the answer is both. The answer is both. You have a very serious crime, okay? And if you take him in for questioning, by the way, right? Somebody says, take him in for questioning. That is an arrest, right? Right, guys? I mean, if you say, hey, you're coming with us to the police station, the vast majority of courts out there are going to say that's a de facto arrest. Correct, because you moved them. So you're not going to get out, you know, you're still going to arrest them. It's just you didn't intend to. Well, somebody said they could have conspired together. Yes, I didn't, I didn't ask you about conspiracy, though, to commit murder. I asked who could you arrest for the murder that night 
And still, the answer is both. One more example. Three gang rape suspects are detained. The victim comes out and she says, she, you know, does a, a field show up, right? She says, all three were present, but I could not see. There was only, there were, I know there were, there were two that sexually assaulted me. I don't know which two. So one of them is innocent of the sexual assault. Now, again, I know we have conspiracy. I know we have aiding and abetting. I'm asking you though, that night on the PC sheet, who could you arrest for sexual assault that night? Okay. Okay, even though they all committed a crime, but they're all three gonna be booked in for sexual assault. That is my point right? One of them is innocent of the sexual assault and guilty for something else, right? That's why it is less than 50%. It's less than 50%. There's a 33% you know, chance that he's guilty. If there's time, a, a time, is there a time limit on PC, felony arrest, warrant versus warrantless, days versus weeks? Yes, but it's all based on state law. It's all based on state law. The Fourth Amendment is actually taken out of the equation. The Fourth Amendment says that a, a, a lawful arrest under the Fourth Amendment is probable cause, police officer with the statutory authority, lawful access to the person, like a public place. How many states do you guys, how, how many of you guys work in states that say you can only arrest for a misdemeanor committed in your presence, except for domestic, DUI, and so forth, right? How many of you guys work in uh, states that say you cannot serve misdemeanor arrest warrants at uh, past you know, 10 p.m., 7 p.m., 9 p.m., right? So all those issues are controlled by state law, not by the Fourth Amendment. So you gotta look at your state law. Hope that helps, Joseph. So actually we're doing good on time, by the way, so we're gonna be done soon. Now, if you have questions, you're welcome. If you have questions, throw them in the, uh, the chat. So probable cause overall requires a fair probability of a crime committed. That is not a high standard. I mean, it's relatively low. It's relatively low, just a fair probability. Now, do not forget, it is not a what? A fair possibility. Cops are great with their what ifs. Cops can always come up with a reason to, They'll say, you know, for pat downs and for, you know, but the problem is cops will give a lot of possible issues, right? Possible things that could, could be or not be. I mean, it's possible right now. It is possible that an alien would come down on top of my head and pull my head off, right? But it's not probable, right? So just don't forget that we are talking probably, not possibly. And if it's probably, you're going to need facts and circumstances to lead a reasonable person to believe that the person you arrested or cited isn't, it committed the crime, right? It is a wonderful thing. Uh, Jose says, someone coming from a closed business at 2 a.m., it's RS, but it, but it does not grant me permission to detain and identify if the person, if the suspect refuses. Well, again, 
if you, first of all, if you believe that you have reasonable suspicion and you said coming from a closed business, if a person is coming out of a closed business and it looks like they are potentially just burglarized it, right? It's not like a business owner coming from the build, you know, from his store to his Mercedes and taking, you know, taking off and just checking on his business or doing some late work. But if you believe that that person's involved in criminal activity, well, the, the follow-up question was nothing is broken into, nor do we have any items. Look, I don't, with those facts, right? Very limited facts and I wasn't there. It does not sound like you have reasonable suspicion. It could be an employee, it could be an owner, right? So I don't think you have reasonable suspicion. So if you don't have reasonable suspicion, you cannot detain nor demand ID. But if you do have reasonable suspicion, then you get to detain and demand ID. And in many states, the refusal to give ID is a crime in and of itself, like Nevada, Louisiana, and so forth. Um, but you got to check your state law, though, right? You got to check your state law. Right. Tim says, ask him if, for, if he has the key that opened the door. And, and, and what Tim just described there is what? What kind of encounter? Consensual. Remember, if you don't have, you know, you got to be, you know, lawful at its inception. All right. Say, hey, so, so I just want to check on, you know, I saw you coming out of there. Can I talk to you for a second? And then if he's, if he's nervous, deceptive, oh, I didn't just come out of that building. Well, then, then you're probably going to detain his ass, right? Because you just saw him come out of there. You get my point. Okay. So only make bare minimum PC arrests for serious cases. Um, and have this kind of motive, right? You're handling a problem, right? You're handling a problem. If you, you know that if you do not do something tonight, somebody's going to get hurt, right? It, you know, and so forth. Um, search incident to arrest evidence. When we arrested both suspects for murder and all three suspects for sexual assault, one of our motives, okay, one of our motives is to find evidence, search into the rest. We're going to do the rape kit. We're going to do GSR. You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to do that. So uh, we're going to, you know, uh, grab phones and so forth. Maybe they have video of it. So that's a, that's a legit motive for these serious cases. And then finally, the need to interrogate. How many times have you arrested a passenger, for example, because they're involved in some constructive possession, right? burglary tools, drugs. Now, you don't really have a solved case against the passenger, not yet, but enough for PC, right? So you got a PC case, but if I asked you, hey, do you think that this would go to trial? And you're, you're like, Anthony, probably not, not with what I have. It, it probably dismissed. But how many times have you arrested those people and what do they start doing? Singing, right? You put the habeas gravis on them. You put the silvers on them. And what do they start doing? Singing. All right, let me tell you what's going on, right? And they either admit to being involved in it because now they know they're, they're caught or they start pointing the finger at other people and giving up evidence. And that is a legit motive. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you have probable cause. Now, a couple things here. <laughs> Somebody says usually before Miranda, which is true. Okay. 
PC to arrest does not mean having enough evidence to convict. That is not required. Now, at the same time, if I'm arresting somebody or citing somebody for a minimal offense, right? I want, I want certainty, okay? I'm not playing games with my career. And I think the guy was involved in um, a, a drag racing. I think that was the car, but I'm really not sure. I stop it because I have at least reasonable suspicion. And the guy's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And there's no other evidence. I'm not citing him for reckless driving and so forth, right? I need to kind of know. It's a minor, it's a relatively minor case. But when it comes to, you know, uh, serious crimes, then you're going to have to, you know, make decisions and, and possibly arrest him for the night. And then we go and we continue our investigation. The good news is this. Probable cause for any violation will make the arrest constitutional, right? Probable cause for any violation will make the arrest constitutional. If you stop somebody for a broken taillight and you arrest them for DUI, and for some reason, your DUI case goes down the toilet and the court says you did not have probable cause to arrest the driver for, probable, for, uh, for DUI, that taillight violation is going to fix it constitutionally. Not the DUI. The DUI is still gone, of course. But if they tried to sue you under 1983, for, uh, forget state law claims. I'm talking about federal claims. That's where the big money's at. If they tried to sue you, as long as you put in your report, and, or you can testify to it, but it should be in your report, that you had probable cause for another offense, even if that offense is non-arrestable and so forth, it's still probable cause for something. It makes it, um, <laughs> Thomas has reminded me that Philly courts will not have that. Okay, so, but, they, but they're not gonna, but remember 1983 is federal anyway, so it's not gonna matter what the state courts think, it's gonna matter what the federal judges think, and that is the federal law. But I, but I, but, but, but I do recognize, I do recognize, I teach in Philly, I, I, I teach in PA, right? I do recognize a lot of places, Maryland, New Jersey, and so forth. Um, I was just in uh, Louisiana, uh, New Orleans is gonna be way tougher than, you know, Alexandria and so forth. But don't forget that, you know, I'm teach I teach the law, right? But people matter in this business. You have a lot of judges out there that um, will just do what they want because their judicial philosophy is not the same as the Supreme Court or the or local courts. So that's that's good to know. But you know, doesn't mean doesn't make it right though either. On their behalf, they should still be applying the law, like it's like it's intended. The goals of RS versus PC. Reasonable suspicion is for crime prevention. Probable cause is for crime apprehension, right? Proponents of the evidence. This is the only one that we know for sure on a percentage scale. The only one. The only one, and we know it is 50% plus a feather. Sometimes you say 51%, but it's just over 50% and higher. That's your civil standard. So if you did violate somebody's rights, they do not, the, and they take, and they sue you. They don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in a civil court. It's preponderance of the evidence, very low standard. Beyond a reasonable doubt, it's not 100%. It's not beyond all doubts. You can have some doubts. It just can't be a reasonable doubt, right? If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. So if there's reasonable doubt, then, you know, they're acquitted. All right, guys, that's what I have for you. 
I hope your time was well spent. Um, I hope your time was well spent. If you have any other follow-up questions, but I have to ask you, if you, if you enjoy these webinars, will you help spread the word, okay? If you, if you enjoy these webinars, will you help spread the word? Other, you know, that's, what I, that's my motive to do them. All right, Lewis asks a, a, a question before you guys go. You're welcome, Tim. Husband and wife situation from earlier. Husband says no to the dresser search and then leaves. Wife consents. Good search? Yes. If the non-consenting party leaves, they give up their, their ability to, to uh, remove consent. That idea, Lewis, is from Fernandez versus California, U.S. Supreme Court case. Fernandez versus California. It could be California versus Fernandez, but I forget. But either way, you'll find it. You're welcome. All right. So Mark asks, last webinar, you showed a video of a traffic stop that the officer was going to run a canine around the car for a drug sniff. I remember that one. The driver's side door was open. The officer pushed the door closed prior to the sniff. You thought that the officer touching the door might have constituted a search under the Jones decision. No, uh, we misunderstood each other, and I apologize. You had a discussion with another attorney in the webinar. What was the issue? No, that's not a search. Closing the door is not a search because there's no intent to gather information. What I was talking about, right, and I, and I, and I sorry if I was confusing about it, was what I was referring to is commanding, the officer commanded his dog to jump onto the car to get a higher level of smell. That is a search under U.S. versus Jones. Does that help, Mark? Hopefully, I'm glad you I'm glad you clarified that because that would be a bad takeaway, and that'd be um, you would have some handlers out there being like, "No way, that's not. We can close doors and so forth, but you can't open windows to make it more likely for this, you know, smell and so forth." That would be an attempt to gather information. All right. So, so Jason asks, can we search if the person is being issued a citation for misdemeanor and let go from the scene? For example, petty theft, search of the backpack, search into arrest. The answer is generally yes. If you have probable cause, okay, that the person has evidence on their person, petty theft, they have evidence of the crime in their backpack, right? They came from Walmart. Target and so forth, and the items that they stole are in their backpack. Yes, you get to recover the evidence, even though you're not formally uh, arresting them. And a lot of it is because you have exigency. That's one. That's one way to do it. Um, is that you have exigency. You can also, I don't know what state you're in, Jason, but you can also, in some states, they'll call this a custodial, uh, a non-custodial arrest. It's an arrest. You have probably you can only do it if you have probable cause that there's evidence on the person, right? It's a non-custodial arrest. You are citing them in lieu of arrest, but you get to recover the evidence. Uh, Scott, Scott, uh, he says it's awesome as always. And first of all, I really appreciate the feedback. Bringing my officers into them. Can you record these to play in roll calls? This will be on YouTube and it'll be posted probably by Tuesday. Thanks, Leonard. My mother says, be safe out there. She loves you guys, and I echo that. 
Okay. Right, right. Yeah, Jason, we're, we're good. You can recover that evidence. That's what I, that's, Jason, that's what I would do if I was the police officer in, in, in California. That's what I would do. And, and by the way, the, uh, the case law supports it. Okay, Leonard says, I lost a DWI case when the driver was so impaired when I went up to the car and greeted him. I asked him if he would roll down the window to talk to me. He couldn't do it. So I asked him if he could open the door and he nodded just out of camera view. And then the court said it was a legal entry. Leonard, what, what, what state are you in? Because this is, that's pretty extreme. Ah, New Mexico, man, New Mexico. Well, now you know why you lost the case. That would not be the outcome in California um, and most other states. It might be the outcome in New Jersey. Not for the driver though, not, he was the driver. So no, so I, my major, it would not be the outcome in New Jersey. It would be the outcome for the passenger if you open the door without a reason. Um, but the vast majority, the vast majority of cases out there would say no, because having, you can get the driver out anyway under the, it's, it's, there is no extra intrusion. So therefore opening the door to get him out. Um, yeah, but, but New Jersey, uh, New Mexico is a tough state. New Mexico is a tough state. So that's not, that's, that, that answer will not be the same in other states. All right, my friends. <laughs> so, my uh, also get people to um, to you know subscribe on YouTube if you're watching this on YouTube. Share that. I'm trying to do a lot more of this, but you got to share the word so that you know this is worth everybody's time, right? If you have questions, email me. Okay. If you have questions, email me at anthony@bandier.com. And with that, I am gonna leave. And enjoy my weekend. Let me just put my email address in the, um, you're welcome, Mark. Let me put my email address in the um, chat. And then you can email me your questions for next, well, not next week, but the two weeks after. For my peeps in Arizona, hopefully I'll see some of you guys. And until next time, stay safe.